Bushwhacker Luke. As you can see, I'm in Hogan's Beach Shop on Clearwater Beach, Florida. And this Saturday, yes, this Saturday from 12 to 2, I'm with two of my WWF, WWE buddies. Yes, the bad guy, Razor Ramon, Scott Hall that is, and Xbox 123 Kids. And we're going to be here signing autographs for you fans for a great cause, 50 legs. So come on down and see us. Because I'll be looking for you to shake your hand and maybe you'll get a licking. Clearwater Beach, Hogan's Beach Shop, this Saturday, 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock. See you here. Whoa! You have to be willing to rewatch a movie. Oh, hell yeah! Strawberry banana. Hey, Bob, please don't aggregate this. Miller, long range three. Ah! Their defense is atrocious. I'm sort of the rock star. Right on the cowboy. People, is the official watch of the NBA. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about aggregation. I'm oddly intrigued by neck tattoos. Well, we love China. We love no playing there. Oh man, oh, man. I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. It's just hitting me right now. Shut up and listen. You, you think you're better than me? Hey! I love how they so they they very instead of dwelling on this like you know in, incredible profound moment of a of a black man rising up and and you know gaining his independence, um, they very quickly um, you know toss it uh, uh, backstage to um, to Mean Gene, who is there with Hulk Hogan. Things really heating up here at the Royal Rumble. And speaking of that, Hulk Hogan, here we go. It's going to be every man for himself. Well, you know something, Mean Gene. Now it's time more than ever for me and all my Hulkamaniacs to unite, brother. You know, there's 29 other competitors in that ring. But I'm not worried about those dudes, brother. I want to tell you what I'm all about and what I'm standing for out here. I'm dedicating this match to all of our boys over there in the Persian Gulf and to all of our allies, Mean Gene. And with that time type of firepower with that type of energy, brother. I don't care about the other 29 competitors, Mean Gene. I'm going to fight, scratch, and claw my way all the way to the top to win that Royal Rumble. Because with the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines behind me, Mean Gene, Hulkamania has got more momentum than I've ever had. And I'm going to prove with all the armed forces behind Hulkamania, truth, justice, the American way, I'm going to prove that I'm going to win that Royal Rumble. Now, if I'm not, not mistaken, this is our very first glimpse of Hogan um, on the broadcast, and he is—he's um, standing in profile, right? So we get the full, you know, the the, the full girth of those glistening twenty-four inch pythons uh, is is like sort of the, the first image that's that we're that we're you know met with, and I mean, boy, like Ghost, do you like want to talk about the 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 feelings that that you felt like the like that at that first image of of Hogan on our screens i mean it's he's he's just i'm speechless now just as i was speechless then he's just uh it's such a sight it's like it feel it fills you with just happiness to see his just big orange wet body and uh <laughs> with that python power 
bandana wrapped around his balding head, which is still sold on Hogan'sBeatShop.com to this day. <laughs> nice buns, brother. Thanks. I got them at Hogan's Beach. The best buns in town, baby. Mmm. You want a ride? <laughs> Hell yeah! Uh, it's Thank just, you for that plug. <laughs> you, you know, you know, you're you're in for. It's like, you know, they say with people that are addicted to things, or whether it be food or candy or hard drugs, a lot of the joy comes not from the consumption of it, but from that period of time where your brain is winding up getting yeah. ready to feast upon it. That's where a lot of the happiness occurs. And so I'm getting those pre-Hogan consumption, just happy juices flowing when I'm seeing this, man. It's like, I'm about to get my hit and I love it. Guys, uh, that is such a good, yeah, such a good point. Sorry to cut you off, Chris, but like the, I think that is maybe why like one of the, like the, those promos, those pre Royal Rumble promos, seeing the guys in front of the backdrop, just talking about what they're about to do is in some ways was was to me as a kid like more exciting like filled me with like a like a more yeah like a like a like a more potent sensation i'm a a, a, yeah a bigger high um, than than the thing itself it's more than half the high some some of these really really big stars were not technically the greatest you know technicians in the ring it really was such a personality thing and yeah, the, promo, oh, the promo was really that stage where they could really be that explosive personality. Um, and that was so much about like the myth building, right? Uh, oh yeah. That was like half the thing that, that, that made a wrestler a wrestler was, was the, was the out of the ring work. So yeah, the mic work while, while we have Hogan here on the screen, um, I know we've talked about this privately and I think we should just air it out now. <laughs> Hogan ghost the aesthetics of Hogan he is so delicious looking and there is a very much uh Ben Ben uh said it once to me he really does remember like resemble a hot dog (laughs) hot dog (laughs) in in many ways yeah and I never really understood that but that sort of like that bronze flesh with like that like um, that 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 bright yellow mustard shirt and that rich ketchup um, bandana. <laughs> he re- yeah, he really Abs- does look so delicious and <laughs> and plump and juicy in terms of just bursting at the seams. Yes. His yeah, skin, his human that- skin is the hot dog casing, and those bulging <laughs> muscles are just just like a hot dog filled Dude, to the absolute I maximum. I am sort of salivating. I am salivating just looking at him on the screen. <laughs> oh oh my god! Yeah, like, you're not yeah you took the words casing right out of my mouth, <laughs> Ghost. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the, we, I've thought about this at great length, and Hogan is, is amazing because he was, you know, the, the most, you know, American, pro-America wrestler, yet he never wrestled in the colors red, white, and blue. And so you're like, why do you associate him so much with America? Obviously, you know, beyond all the stuff that he would say, because um, that's obvious, but, but just the image of him, why does it feel so American? That's because you look at him, and... So almost subconsciously, you think of the food that you consume on the Fourth of July. It's a, like he is the which is a hot dog. Yeah, he is a he's the color of a hot dog. Ballpark with yellow mustard and red ketchup around that hot dog. Dude, I am shook. I will never be the same. 
No, he is a ballpark Frank. Uh, he he is Holy French's shit. mustard with with the Heinz ketchup and that Nathan's hot dog body. And my goodness, he's absolutely delicious. You're right, Ben. When I think of the 4th of July, I think of uh, a delicious hot dog Hogan. Um, and my God, seeing it on full display here, it's, uh, it's really something, man. Just that yeah. oily, wet body. It's like it's coming right out of the, the, the right off steam the grill. tank that they have on the street with the hot dogs, right? <laughs> yes, yes, 100%. Um, yeah, it's just one of those, one of the most, yeah, just iconic and just effective images in, in the history of, of, you know, branding, of, of anything, of, of, of culture, yeah. And then, and then he opens his mouth, his first words, well, you know something, me and Gene, and I'm just like, all right, you got me. Yeah. Like I'm, I am in a hundred percent. And now I don't know if we've fully fleshed this out on on the on the show yet, but um, you know, Ghost, you've mentioned, you've said, I, I feel like you you said you weren't like a hundred percent a Hogan guy. You were like more like I, that I was certainly him. the case with me. That was sir, I, I think yeah. I said that, yeah. I, I was definitely like big fan of Hogan. I mean, yeah. I, I I'd say it was if I had to put it on a pie chart, top three, it was probably like fifty-one uh, percent Hogan and then Macho and Ult- and Warrior. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, while I've you know sort of evolved and changed um, later in life, as a kid, I was ninety-eight percent. I was Hogan. Yeah. I was just like yeah. hook, line, and sinker. Like I loved lots of the other guys. But, like, at the end of the day, the thing... And, it, like, it's so cliche. It's so obvious. Like, of course. Like, everyone... Like, that's why well, the, wrestling became he, what it he became. Was he was the protagonist of the WWF. He was the, he yeah. was the son in the universe. For a, of, for a of, of, solid of, decade. Yeah, of, of the WWF. Yeah, he was the entire thing. That's why literally every pay-per-view event was built around him posing at the end victorious. Hogan must pose being the, the kind of, you know... Uh, uh, phrase that that you know was was always uh, you know the, kind of the, the the definition of of what they were doing uh, on these uh, for these events. So um, yeah, and it just it just worked on me. I, yeah, man. I, yeah. Also, I, just I like mean, he had like he was effectively the sun god, and I think about that bright yellow shirt in the same way, and the way he posed where it was like towards the heavens. It, there was mm-hmm. something sort of mythic. You know, we we used these words when we were talking about warrior the other day. There is something sort of mythic and godlike about Hogan and his place in like the constellation of the WWF. Yeah, yeah, that yellow is just so powerful. Like the way it popped. Like you don't like. I mean, I guess Mr. Perfect had like a yellow, um, had like yellow tights. But like other than like there weren't there wasn't yeah. really. But yeah, and it like, was like the mustard yellow on the on the bronze uh, hot dog skin. Yeah, it just popped. It popped off the screen. Um, everything about him you know, his voice anyway. So we should get into his promo um, because this is actually incredible <laughs> what happens during this promo. Um, so this is, you know, basically the, um, the final promo before the, um, the Royal Rumble begins. Um, and so it is, um, yeah, it's, it's me and Gene and Hogan. Hulk is dedicating the, 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 the Rumble, you know, his performance to all our boys and uh, over there in the Persian Gulf you know, he says, with the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines behind me, Mean Gene, Hulkamania has got more momentum than I've ever had. Um, you know, he throws out the red meat, the truth, justice, the American way. You know, he's doing his thing. 
And then suddenly Mean Gene cuts in. I'm going to prove that I'm going <laughs> to win that Royal Rumble. Hold on, Hulk. I hate to interrupt you. We are getting, and I can't believe this, an unconfirmed report that the new World Wrestling Federation champion, Sergeant Slaughter, has just defaced the American flag. Now, that could just be a rumor. An unconfirmed report that the new WWF champion, Sergeant Slaughter, has just defaced the American flag. <laughs> Um, now, Mean Gene quickly notes, that could just be a rumor. <laughs> I mean, all right, first of all, I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, Mean Gene, that is some incredibly yeah. irresponsible reporting. You can't... Like, what, which is it, Mean Gene? You can't have yeah. it both ways here. <laughs> I mean, that is a serious, serious claim. You can't just throw that out there without, you know, confirming, you know, getting a second source. I mean, I'm a journalist, you know, so maybe, uh, this isn't obvious to everyone else, but, uh... But yeah, you, you, you can't you can't uh, just just throw that kind Hearsay. of rumor and innuendo out there um, without opening yourself up to a serious uh, slander l- lawsuit. Um, yeah. And uh, but but uh, you know he throws it out there, um, and Hulk obviously not happy about it, um, and uh, you know takes takes Slaughter to task uh, for defacing the American flag, um, which. <laughs> Again, like, the whole idea of this happening is so hilarious to me because, like, it was, like, what, maybe 20 or 30 minutes earlier, we had had Slaughter backstage, you know, celebrating um, his uh, his newly won, you know, championship belt with, with Adnan. And then I'm thinking to myself, like, so, like, he didn't do this on camera. He was just, like, celebrating, like, maybe, like, drinking some champagne with Adnan. <laughs> and then it's just like, hey, you know what we should do? <laughs> Yeah. You should go find an American flag and fucking deface that. Yeah, thing. and uh, like, do me do, a like, favor. Will you get Mean Gene on the phone while we do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just, leak like, this like, to the press. Listen, yeah, like don't let anyone see it, but maybe just like leak it out there. Yeah. Um, like, just let's let him know privately. it may or may not be happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, did he do? Like, did he? Was he like trying to like hide it and like someone like you know backstage like peeked into his locker room and like saw them like burning an American flag inside the locker room and they're like no and like no, slam the door it's, like it's not the American flag it's just a uh, <laughs> it's it's a just a vague sort of nondescript flag non denominational oh flag yeah um, hey by the way guys did you notice when uh, I, sh- I should point this out I don't think we've told the audience at home about this but i tweeted at slaughter last week i copied you guys and i put like the the, the no sign around the kuwaiti flag and he like co-signed on to that <laughs> yeah, oh my god that's right yeah yeah ghost has been uh he's been a little active on on twitter with with sergeant slaughter uh of late um go ahead and look that up if you're curious um <laughs> at swish at trash radio at trash bag yeah. ghost so then another incredible thing um and i don't know if you guys caught this but at one point um as hogan is is uh you know taking slaughter to task um for uh defacing the american flag he says sort of um in passing i don't care if it's legal or not brother new world wrestling federation champion sergeant slaughter has just defaced the american flag now that could just be a rumor no, me. No, no, me and Gene. Let me tell you something. Sergeant Slaughter stealing the WWF title is one thing. But if Sergeant Slaughter has gone so far to deface Old Glory, to deface the red, white, and blue, brother, I don't care if it's legal or not, brother. Sergeant Slaughter, that would be the fate that would seal you in for good. And no matter what. Now, that was uh, made me kind of pause. And I was like, wait, what? What? Um, so it's important to note that defacing the American flag um, uh, as of January 19th, 1991, is no longer a crime. 
uh, thanks to a U.S. Supreme Court case that had been decided just a few months prior, um, which I yeah definitely didn't remember um, as a kid. Um, but um, but but basically, like burning an American flag, like so during protests, um, uh, or uh, um, you know, basically in, in reaction to, to protests during the Vietnam War. Um, in uh in 1968 they they passed uh the flag protection act um which made it uh illegal to burn or deface in any way um the american flag so it was punishable by uh one year in prison it's a very depressing year i found in the states you know all year long i had that flag hoopla right i mean i personally do not believe in burning the flag it's a personal belief but i'm telling you something i think people are overreacting oh just a little bit Hey, buddy, my daddy died for that flag. Well, I bought mine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, they sell them at Kmart for three bucks. You're in, you're out, brand new flag. No violence was necessary. <laughs> hey, buddy, my daddy died in the Korean War for that flag. What a coincidence. My flag was made in Korea. Now, then, in 1989, the 101st Congress amended that law, um, and, uh, and then there was a Supreme Court case uh, that year, Texas versus Johnson, uh, blah, blah, blah. On June 11, 1990, the Supreme Court, in the case of United States versus Eichmann, struck down the Flag Protection Act, ruling again that the government's interest in preserving the flag as a symbol does not outweigh the individual's First Amendment right to disparage that symbol through expressive conduct. Um, so I just love that, that Hulk is, is like, you know, very up on his, on his uh, recent Supreme Court case law and is able to, to, you know, just sort of like drop that little caveat in there that he's like, a, hey, it might be, it might be legal, but that doesn't mean it's right. He's a SCOTUS, um, uh, just junkie. He's inhaling that stuff every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure he followed that case very closely. Um, um, it's also worth noting that, that I feel like flag burning, like wasn't an issue at all, like in the public discourse from basically like that time, um, uh, f- throughout the rest of like my childhood and, and, and early adulthood. Um, uh, and then um, it really wasn't a thing until that is November 2016 when President-elect Donald Trump tweeted seemingly out of nowhere, um, nobody should be allowed to burn the American flag. If they do, there must be consequences, perhaps loss of citizenship or year in jail. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was like a little minor kerfuffle um, uh, you know, in the news media because everyone was just like, what the fuck? Like, why is Donald Trump <laughs> talking about flag burning? And like, it's sh- like the fact that it should be a, a, a crime now. Like, it was just, yeah, very, very curious to me. Um, but uh, there were a lot of, you know, I have to say, I mean, I, I don't want to go on a tangent here, so I'll keep this really brief. But there were a lot of um, performance artists, one of whom was Karen Finley, who I studied with in college, who were really like, pushing the boundaries of um kind of what was acceptable and like what what audiences would sort of tolerate um with their art and i know in the case of karen and the uh a a, a small group of artists who were 
getting grants from the NEA, they had their money withheld um, because they mm. their work was considered like not criminal, but like disrespectful to the point where like they would know the government would no longer sort of sanction their art. Mississippi Democrat G.B. Montgomery's proposed legislation sets a one thousand dollar fine and a one year jail term for anyone displaying the American flag on the floor or the ground. He says he is upset by a controversial exhibit at a Chicago Art Institute. That city's government is also taking action. Steve Sanders has more. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. It was a rare display of unity among Chicago council members, reciting the pledge after passing a resolution condemning the controversial flag display. I think this goes beyond the First Amendment right. I think that the Art Institute got a little cute. I think what they should do is remove that from the floor. What it's doing there is inviting desecration. It's almost an entrapment. They want people to step on the flag. Nearly two weeks after WGN News reported the story, the controversy continued to boil over in what for one politician has become a daily game of capture the flag. State Senator Walter Dudich picked up the flag and sealed it in a special U.S. Postal Service envelope and what might have been a vaguely motivated effort to force the Art Institute to engage in mail tampering. This envelope is addressed to President George Bush, the White House, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C., 20003. And coming from we the people. Whatever Dudich's motive, the Art Institute wasn't buying it. Within minutes, the flag was reportedly back on the floor. While the daily demonstrations continue, it is clear the controversy is far from over. With temperatures predicted near 60 degrees this weekend, veterans are expecting as many as 25,000 will take part in a massive demonstration against the display. Wow, yeah, crazy. At this point in time, it was just like a very sensitive, you know, moment in our culture with respect to American symbols and defacing them. And like... This is probably a broader conversation just about like American identity and how we were just like, I don't mean to say very precious, but like we were very like guarded about uh, Americanism and protecting Americanism, um, especially as we were headed to war here with Iraq. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like that was like sort of one of the major projects of the, of the whole Reagan administration right. was like you know, restoring America's, you know, like pride and, 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 you know, self-respect following Vietnam and, you know, to, you know, making America that shining city on a hill. And this national feeling is good, but it won't count for much and it won't last unless it's grounded in thoughtfulness and knowledge and informed patriotism is what we want. And are we doing a good enough job teaching our children what America is and what she represents in the long history of the world? Those of us who are over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American. And we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you got them from the neighborhood, from the father down the street who fought in Korea, or the family who lost someone at Anzio. Or you could get a sense of patriotism from school. And if all else failed, you could get a sense of patriotism from the popular culture. The movies celebrated democratic values and implicitly reinforced the idea that America was special. TV was like that, too, through the mid-60s. But now we're about to enter the 90s, and some things have changed. 
Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. And as for those who create the popular culture, well-grounded patriotism is no longer the style. You know, just like really, really leaning into the the jingoism and the and the nationalism, um, which of course kind of like define the the entire decade of the eighties, um, so at least culturally. The NEA four really quickly was Karen Finley, Tim Miller, John Fleck, and Holly Hughes. These were a group of performance artists, and they had their veto. They had their money vetoed. Um, by wow. the United States government. They had their grant money taken away. This is June of 1990. The National Endowment for the Arts has distributed billions of dollars of federal funding to support works of artistic and cultural significance. But in the 1990s, funding decisions sparked controversy about standards of decency and free speech. The United States Supreme Court had to sort it out in National Endowment for the Arts versus Finley. In 1990, NEA-funded photographs by Robert Mapplethorpe and Andres Serrano shocked some members of the art-viewing public. Congress responded by writing Section 954, an amendment to the National Foundation on the Arts and Humanities Act, directing the NEA to consider general standards of decency and respect for the diverse values of the American public when evaluating the artistic merit of grant applications. Four performance artists, including Karen Finley, who performed nude, had applied for NEA grants before the amendment was enacted. An advisory panel had recommended funding the projects, but their applications were denied by the NEA Council. Finley and the others sued in federal district court, claiming that the NEA had violated their First Amendment rights by rejecting their applications on political grounds. They argued that Section 954 was viewpoint discrimination because it rejected artistic speech that failed to respect mainstream values or that offended standards of decency. The district court found for Fenley. The Court of Appeals affirmed, holding that the decency and respect criteria weren't objective, could be arbitrarily applied, and violated the First Amendment's prohibition on viewpoint-based restrictions on protected speech. The United States Supreme Court granted certiorari. Wow. Yeah, and it went to the Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court in the National Endowment for the Arts versus Karen Finley. Wow. Yep. That's nuts. Yep. So there were a lot of cases around that time. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? Didn't think we'd be talking about uh, Supreme Court case law in the middle of a 1991 Royal Rumble deep dive, did you? So then the uh, <laughs> the big climax of uh, of Hulk's promo here, um, he completely flubs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which every time I watch it, it just fills me with like the deepest just anxiety and <laughs> and sadness. Because um, I I just I don't know what it is, but I have like a thing about um, like performance anxiety and and like watching like actors like flub lines and play <laughs> or like forget lines or like anytime someone is just making like a human error um, during a performance. It just really, I think I had like a childhood experience um, during like a piano recital where I, where I like forgot, I was like, for some reason I did, I didn't have my like music in front of me. I was supposed to like perform something um, by memory um, and I completely fucked it up um, and it like really stuck with me. Um, so I think that maybe triggered, triggered me here. Wow. Um, 
But yeah, so Hulk Hulk begins, you, you know, after this big wind up. No, me, no, no, me and Gene. Let me tell you something. Sergeant Slaughter stealing the WWF title is one thing, but if Sergeant Slaughter has gone so far to deface Old Glory, to deface the Red, White, and Blue brother, I don't care if it's legal or not, brother. Sergeant Slaughter, that would be the fate that would seal you in for good. And no matter what happens, me and Gene, Sergeant Slaughter's reign as the WWF champion is going to be just like. Uh, I can understand. You know what, brother? I know exactly Sudan, what... Sudan is going to be just like Sudan Hussein's reign over Kuwait, brother. It's going to be only temporary. Thank you, Hulk Hogan. Sergeant Slaughter's reign as the WWF champion is going to be just like... And then he just completely stammers and, and blanks on the name that he's uh, supposed to say right there. Um... And then eventually, kind of like Mean Gene, you know, quick on his feet, kind of cuts in to, to try to help him out. And then Hogan kind of recovers and remembers, J- just like Saddam Hussein's raid over Kuwait, brother. It's going to be only temporary. <laughs> and it's just like, ugh, didn't, didn't quite, didn't quite stick the landing there, Hulk. Um, so I guess these were live, right? Like, this is not a pre-recorded thing, right? I have to believe. I have to believe they could just retape it. All right, like if if there was a flub that big, wouldn't they just retape it? Yeah, that's a really good because I know a lot of them were pre-recorded, but I guess that one, no. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, you'd think they'd be able to just splice in a like piece of video two. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, huh, that's interesting. Anyways, maybe they just thought the rest of it was so good. Um, I mean, he, you know, yeah. up until then, the, he'd, he'd nailed everything. So, I don't know. Maybe they were just like, whatever, let's use it. Monsoon tries to kind of cover it up after, when they cut back to the booth, he says, Hulkster really bent out of shape, and I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great like, point. I mean, I love how all these guys, you know, again, like, they're they're putting on a, a, a play, basically. Like, it's all, you know, all these working parts. Um, and, you know, we haven't talked much about, like, the kind of production aspect of, of everything that they're doing. But it, it really is incredible how they're all, like, you know, working together, all the all the stuff, like, behind the scenes, on camera, behind camera. It's just, like, yeah, really, really crazy. Um, so then Howard Finkel is in the ring and announces the most exciting words that I had ever heard up to that point. Hulkster really bent out of shape, and I don't blame him. I don't either. He's no coming time. with the vengeance, and it is for time. The Royal Holy Rumble. It's time for the Royal Rumble. And here we go, baby. All right, so let's outline real quick, Ben, what exactly a Royal Rumble is. So there, give us just the basic setup. So this is going to be... Over the course of the entire match, we will have 30 wrestlers, 30 contestants uh, enter the ring, and they will all be in the ring at the same time brawling with each other. The idea is we'll start with two, and every two minutes, a new wrestler will enter the ring, right? And this is randomly drawn order here. So you have 30 wrestlers. They all draw a number. The first the first one to draw his, his, his card is Bret Hart. So Bret Hart draws number one overall, and he's going to square off against Dino Bravo. And um, is that the basic idea, Ben? And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are eliminated from the Rumble if you are tossed over the top rope of the ring. That's right. You have to... Um, the only way to be eliminated is to go over the top rope. Uh, so if you go under uh, one of the ropes, um, doesn't count. You have to go over the top rope, and your feet, and I believe the rule is both feet 
have to touch the ground. Okay. Um, that is outside the ring. Um, the Royal Rumble is, um, I'll just come out and say it, it's the best sports entertainment product ever created, in my opinion. Um, it is, it's just the most entertaining, like, single thing that I feel like has ever been, like, thought up. It's, like, better than, like, a slam dunk contest. It's better than a home run derby. It's better than a Super Bowl. It's just, like, it's, you know, obviously not talking about, like, actual sports moments in games or whatever. But, like, as as far as, like, a concept, as far as, like, a, a you know, a, an event that's been, like, conceived, I think it's, like, the best. I think it's number one. <laughs> it's just, like, constant... Uh, like short attention span, like every two minutes, like, you know, you're watching this action and if you get bored, all you have to do is wait two minutes and then something new happens. Um, And then of course, like the more time that passes, the more men enter, the more crazy and chaotic. It's just like, there's, it's constant nonstop, just like, you know, visual stimulus. Um, And, it's totally unpredictable, um, even though it's, you know, clearly, obviously scripted like everything else. It's, um, you know, there's tons of improvisation and, and um, yeah, it's just incredible. And then the fact that, like, it's literally like a, like a childhood game of, like, oh, if, you're, if your feet touch the ground, like, the ground is lava. <laughs> yeah. Like, if your feet touch it's the ground. It's so easy to wrap your head around. It's, it's no so, nuance. like. You know, I yeah. loved it then. I love it now. It's just, like, I like easy rules. That's why, you know, like, stuff like that, it was, it's so good for, like, simpletons which is what children are in a a, a lot of ways and some of us never grow out of it uh intellectually speaking it's like it's why i had to transfer from uh tight end on the football field to uh d tackle just like i couldn't wrap my mind around uh plays and things like that Mm, it just mm -hmm. like push this or push that or get them in you know it's just like it's (laughs) so simple it's so beautiful in its simplicity brute force and simplicity uh, combination for success and fun as far as I am concerned. Yeah, guys. you can kind of turn off your mind, right? It's like, yeah, here, I love doing here's that. the whole thing. Just stay in the ring. Yeah. You know, yeah. At all costs, yeah. stay in the ring. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's the best. Yeah. And like the idea of like being like thrown overboard, you know, like, oh, like you're on a boat, you know, it's, yep. it's just like taps into this like childhood, like playing on your couch and you can't fall yeah. off the couch. You yeah. Know? Like, that's the other thing. Just... It, this was a game basically that we all played as kids, which was like, yeah, you're not allowed. I'll throw you off this thing. See, see if you can yeah. stay on it. Like I'm king, king of the, ca- like, yeah, uh, yeah. whatever, king of the hill. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Or yeah, King of the Castle. It's just like so uh, rudimentary. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Man, it's just the best. All right, Ben. So so start us off here. We have Bret Hart and Dino Bravo. Hitman coming out. Yeah. Look at how fucking cool this guy looks. Those glasses, sparkling in the lights. Like, of course, he, you know, he would always throw his glasses uh, to a young fan in the front row. Um, uh, the greasiest hair in the entire company, uh, I would, for my money. Um, the, the pink and the black, just an absolute fucking badass. Like, my God, I love Bret Hart so much. Still do to this day. Um, uh, contrast that with Dino Bravo, an absolute zero. Um, <laughs> I mean, this guy is basically just like a, like a, bad carbon copy of greg the hammer valentine i guess (laughs) um yeah the poor man's greg valentine and that's a disgusting sentence (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, I will say he looked like an absolute animal. The guy's physique was yeah. uh, was incredible. He did um, not have a neck. Is that fair? Like it looks like his his head was yeah, just muscles stuck covered his neck. in his shoulders almost. Yeah, yeah. Muscles were, were all over that neck, so you couldn't see the neck. I mean, he was a real brute in terms of uh, yeah. what he was getting up to outside of the ring. I mean, I, th- I think we're going to get into this, but what a, what a story yeah. with this guy. It sounds like he really was just, he looks like a little cannonball in here, but he really was a, a thug out in the streets, it sounds like. He he did, he was not a friendly, agreeable guy. He was making enemies left and right, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very tragic end to his story. He died in 1993 at the age of 44, um, not from a uh, steroid and painkiller-induced heart attack like most of his uh, competitors, um, but rather um, shot to death by the Quebecois Mafia, uh, most likely due to his alleged involvement in a uh, illegal cigarette smuggling ring in Canada. Whoever shot Dino Bravo wanted him dead. The killer or killers fired at least 17 bullets from two separate guns, hitting the 44-year-old Bravo several times in the head and upper body. More bullets ricocheted around the room, one hitting a front window of the home on Place Michel Gamela in the Vimo district of Laval. About 12.20 this morning, Bravo's wife returned home with her six-year-old daughter and found her husband's body slumped in a chair in front of the living room television. I can't understand why you would want to shoot somebody like Dino Bravo. Yeah, he um, he was born in Italy, but but moved to Canada uh, when he was young and, and trained in Montreal. Um, and Italian then, Canadian, not a common one you find often. Uh, yeah, just couldn't quite fit into that uh, Canadian lifestyle, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so when he was done with wrestling in the early '90s, he just didn't really have much to uh, fall back on. Um, ben the Hitman, uh, the Hitman was Canadian, correct? He was, yeah, okay. yeah. So, uh, Bret Hart's from Calgary. So, yeah. so, we, so have, two, two Canadians we have two Canadians to, to start here us off. squaring off in the ring. Ghost, how yep, would you yep. how would you describe Hitman's look here? Okay, so I, I liked Hitman. I I like Hitman in the present tense. Uh, his look then. Um, it's kind of overshadowed by an observation I've had of him. I just, my one note is that Brett, and he's had a lot of tragedy, so I, he gets some, you know, leeway for this, but he's just looked tired and sad for his entire life. I, yeah. I, I think that's and, fair. But, yeah. He, he, I, he I struck me as, like, exhausted. Like, he like, looks absolutely exhausted and uh even i look at this now and i can see it uh in his eyes yeah yeah he he's been through some shit so like he knows sadness and tragedy just yeah like i just unfortunately that's all it's colored by uh that colors everything i think about him i just see sadness in his eyes which is kind of a downer thing to say but a lot of wrestling is not so bright and cheery as we know fellas but yeah I just, you know, I see that ostentatious kind of pretending you're happy when you go out in public wearing the bright neon pink, but I just see sadness in his eyes. So I see just kind of a man in kind of internal turmoil, if you want to know the truth. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. I think it's also one of the things that, that, again, without my like sort of realizing it, kind of made him stand out to me is that he was this guy in this world of over-the-top cartoonish, you know, incredible characters um, but he felt a little realer. He kind of yeah. felt like he was like almost like ground- the first like gr- like grunge wrestler. Yeah, and, like, like he was in, the he was like reality. the nir- yeah like yeah, he was well the Nirvana. Put. 
he was the Nirvana uh, in comparison to uh, you know Hulk Hogan's Motley Crue, you know, um, or, uh, or or Ultimate Warrior's Bon Jovi. You know, he he was like this guy who um, who really kind of felt like a, like the next generation um, of like a little bit realer. And he was. It's interesting that he was kind of the the bridge between this era and the Attitude era. Um, you know, he was kind of like after Hogan left the the um, company. He was sort of like the last man, um, you know, hanging around to, to be pushed as like the big star of the company um, in the mid 90s. And um, but yeah, you're right. Like he never for being a professional wrestler, he didn't he wasn't ostentatious. He wasn't. Um, I mean, of course, his reputation was for being an incredible worker, great, you know, technical wrestler. Um, and that would be sort of his legacy. Um, but he wasn't a character. He wasn't like a like a ridiculous like he wasn't, you know. Uh, uh, you know, posing for the fans. He wasn't doing all, all kinds of like crazy stuff. Yeah, you're right. He never smiled. He was always like, even even somber. back then. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, really good point. But I think it's kind of what made him feel like a little realer, a little edgier. Yeah. yeah so nice, I think I was sure. like, I was like, oh man, he's like a teenager. Like he's kind of cool. <laughs> There's something emo, um, emo about him. Yeah. 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 Totally. Time. Here we go. Oh, we're almost five seconds away from number three hitting the ring. Who's it going to be? The third wrestler to draw is Greg the Hammer Valentine. Um, there he is, baby. <laughs> there he is, uh, Ghost. How do you how do you describe Greg the the look on Greg the Hammer Valentine? Just a big mop of blonde hair. You got the gold yellow boots and then the black trunks um what what do you have here for greg the hammer uh, yeah i got i have uh, a few bullet points uh basically there's not much to say with this guy he's just like a barrel propped up on two like woefully underdeveloped uh, legs <laughs> and they say he has a, a head like a pumpkin yeah and i have this other bullet point profoundly unattractive and i actually made a scale for us here in terms of facial aesthetic scale uh on the one at zero you have greg the hammer valentine and at 10 you have carrie von eric this is the scale of course of this royal rumble we could extend mm. that further sure but we won't uh but yeah it goes from carrie von eric beautifully you know just angular features to this mm. bloated mass of just globule <laughs> humanity uh, sitting atop the barrel that is greg the hammer valentine i you know whatever i i I can appreciate beauty in men, and I don't see an ounce of it in Greg the Hammer Valentine. It, I just, I, I retch internally when I look at this man. <laughs> okay, ghost. Well, that's how you feel, and that's how you feel. <laughs> Listen, I'm not, I don't back. see. No, I don't see the lie. I, I, I can't argue with a single, right. single uh, second of that. Then entering the ring two minutes later, we have yeah. Paul Roma. Um, Paul Roma. What do we know about this guy, Ben? I mean, another zero. You know, they were just get they were just moving through names sure. at this point. Just like get these guys out. You know, just cycle through them. Yep. I don't know. I mean, he was kind of he was part of a tag team, uh, Power and Glory, I believe, with um, with another guy, Her- Hercules. Mm. You know, kind of a pretty boy type, but like not totally forgettable. The first one um, that popped for me here, uh, and Piper is absolutely elated with his entrance, is the Texas Tornado. Now that's the fifth guy to draw. Who is it? Can't tell you. 
needs some help. And he comes in like a bat out of hell, slides under that bottom rope, and he is just firing on all cylinders when he gets into the ring. The Texas mm-hmm, Tornado mm-hmm. Uh, ghost here in the purple trunks. He's got the tassels on the boots, that long, uh, long flowing mop of brunette hair that Ben loves so much. Um, what do we know? Uh, what do we like about the Texas Tornado here? Well, we know I like his uh, jawline and his body fat percentage facially. A good, <laughs> just uh, look good-looking man, and uh, oh my God, Ghost tonight is no exception. Turns out, Ghost is the most superficial man on the podcast. <laughs> I really, in certain ways, I'm an artist, man. I just, yeah, no, I just... you're all about the physical aesthetics. Yep, I get it. No, I mean like. Wh- that's, Let's be honest. Like, why why are we watching wrestling? Yeah, that, you know? that's why we, that's why we're here. Like, we're looking for for visual titillation. Yes. Are we not? <laughs> Ghost, continue judging, um, please. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my biggest thrill is when I see uh, the highest man on my uh, looks totem pole getting a few good shots in on that disgusting, you know, insult to God, uh, Greg the Hammer <laughs> Valentine. Uh, so that was really just the highlight. Of, of the rewatch of this 30 years later. It meant yeah. nothing to me at the time, but I, I really, I, I watched that uh, a number of times. He gets one, a few good licks in on uh, the hammer. One thing I'll point mm. out, bottom left corner of our screen here, uh, Ben, I know you'll love it. Ghost, you're you're probably uh, crazy for 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 uh, aesthetics of, of typography as well. The yeah. the clock counting down for the next oh, yeah. wrestler. Mm-hmm. I am in love with this font, the typography here. Mm-hmm. Um, Ghost, how would you thick, how would you describe this? Shadow. Yeah, we have a thick drop shadow. Do we know? Can you guess, Ghost, what the name of this font might be? Does it remind you, know, you of anything that you work with? The funny thing is, like uh, you know, after dealing with you know hundreds and hundreds of uh, typefaces over the years, you. You see them out in public. You see, and, and wow. you see funny things too. Like you'll see, like a Chinese restaurant that just you can see that they chose to. Oh, that looks cool. That looks good. But it's really the Mortal Kombat font from like the nineties, <laughs> or they just went on Defont.com and they find some crazy thing. Wait, so this, go, I Ghost. I must ask. So when you're when you're out in the world, you see. I see dead people. Font types. I see, yeah, font names on, you know billboards on everything yeah absolutely it's it's a curse and a blessing i was gonna say is that wildly distracting i like it you like no not really you know pretty much everything for me is wildly distracting so that's just par for the course (laughs) yeah uh visually uh in that sense but uh yeah you know you see oh yeah they use papyrus on it i'm saying it all the time to my girlfriend i menus i must be just insufferable but she puts up for me which is great (laughs) i'll just i like menus is when i'm at my worst i'll say like oh papyrus oh my god how cringe they use burning cowboy (laughs) So, you know, this just looks like a nice, simple sans serif with a big, thick drop shadow. It does the job. It's not, like, uh, you know, uh, baked into some kind of, like, cringy UI, like, user interface, like, box that they could have done like they do in the late 80s, early 90s. It's just there, Mm -hmm. like a PNG with a a clear background. Looks Looks pretty slick. Uh, there, there is actually a website. I, I won't uh, send us down this rabbit hole, but you can actually, I could take a screenshot of this and like plug it into uh, kind of a rudimentary AI program that'll like uh, suggest what this font act, what this typeface might actually. Oh be. my so, goodness! Oh, wow. I'll, I'll follow up. With we that. will connect offline. Yeah. <laughs> like a Shazam, like a Shazam, like a Shazam for fonts. In a certain way, yeah. 
That's awesome. That's insane. Love that. Yeah, I love the minimalism of it for sure. Very, very uh, good choice. Yep. All right, next up. Who's going to be? Here he comes. Oh, my, my. The model, Rick Martell. It's Rick the Model Martell. Ben, I know you're going to have some stuff to say here. Uh, Rick the Model Martell comes flying in, absolutely flying yeah. in. He's got those purple shorts uh the purple knee bands uh, the the knee braces i should say rick the model martel very um very simple i would say like minimalistic ghost is that fair to describe his look yeah i mean he sort of like let's let's the body do the talking let's the hair do the talking absolutely i mean a lot of these guys it's like with mortal kombat where they do the palette swap essentially you have if you guys are familiar with mortal kombat you have a lot of these ninjas especially in the early iterations of the game that are just palette swaps of one another there's a red ninja there's a green ninja there's a yellow ninja there's a blue ninja and they all have separate names and identities and characters technically on paper Mm -hmm. but we all kind of treat them as the same they're just kind of interchangeable fundamentally the same thing in different color yeah that's how i view people like uh rick martell it's like because i i like to look at the more visually interesting one so he's just a palette swap to me right. he's just a name greek drone. god he's, greek he's... god body in purple shorts i mean can i counterpoint that one yeah, go like ahead. i i i i i guess i get your point with his with his tights um but if if carrie von eric is your uh 10 on the face scale <laughs> it's it's incredible actually that they're back to back because my number 10 on the face scale is Rick the Model Martell. I mean, Fair enough. you know, we, we talked about him last episode, so I don't need to go back into that uh, that well. But um, but yeah, he really would sort of become like, obviously he's a heel. So I, I hated him as a kid. I was rooting against him. I wanted him to get knocked out. Um, but watching him now, like my my appreciation for this man uh, just just grows with with every second that I watch him work. You know, he's yeah. Um, but uh yeah we should guys anyway we can, two move, minutes, we can move on two minutes has passed that means yep. saba simba is sliding under that bottom rope sliding into the ring and he uh is built like a brick shit house he is coming in firing on all cylinders saba simba there you talking some beef on the hook Ghost, let's talk let's talk a little bit about saba simba's uh get up here we have sort of a cloak hanging across his 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 front his crotch area and a cloth a cloth yeah yeah and um how then how would you describe what's on like his shins they almost look like shin guards uh like when you were playing soccer um oh yeah you know i never they're not boots right like he's barefoot no he's barefoot but you're right he has like full like not, like tribal shin not guards shin on. guards but like yeah he has some sort of decorative or, thing or around his legs almost. yeah yeah a wrap yeah. Around it, is it, around is it fur maybe is it supposed to be fabric it looks like it might sure. be like some kind of animal pelt perhaps um that he uh you know no doubt won on the you know in the serengeti um <laughs> yeah i don't know man saba simba probably the less said about him the better um certainly one of the uh you know more in terms of the WWF racism scale, you know, I would, I would say he's he's pretty pretty, pretty high, high up there. there. Yeah, he um, just fits into know. the kind of the primitive trope, uh, you know, just generic primitive guy. Right, right. Yeah, like a, sort of a, f- a forgotten yeah. uh, Kamala. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, knockoff. You know. Now, at this point, for our listeners imagining, um, there are about three or four mini squabbles happening in the ring at once. I think this mm-hmm. is sort of critical to, th- to to imagine in your mind's eye. It's not just one big pile of seven people in one big brawl. It is essentially these little wars, these little factions that are happening throughout yeah, the ring. Yeah, little flare-ups that happen. Right, Yeah. right. So there are, at this point, seven people in the ring. Guess what, guys? Two minutes has passed. Enter draw number eight. That would be Bushwhacker Butch. I got a lot of questions like, here, but go ahead, Ben. Fire away. I know you want to get some stuff off your chest about a chest about um, Bushwhacker Butch. Well, real quick before that, I just want to note just the amount of uh, time already that Model is spending um, teetering on the ropes. Um, uh, one of those little uh, minis, you know, flare-up feuds that happen is uh, Bret Hart versus the Model. That gets very heated uh, early on here. Um, you know, Bret Hart is, is, uh, is going for those, um, for those eliminations. I will say he's not really good at, um, getting people out of the ring. He usually puts them on top of the top rope and then grabs their legs and kind of pulls their legs back into the ring as he's pushing their torso out of the ring. Um, which might explain why he's, um, often unsuccessful in his efforts. Um, but, um, but yeah, model uh, right from the right from the get go, he's basically like set up as the as like the close call guy. Um, like the number of times that he is uh, in in real trouble and and manages to Survive. you know yeah weasel his way back into the ring is is uh, fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean the the bushwhackers. Um, one of the, one of the most memorable, you know, tag teams from my childhood, um, really just an incredible creation, like the most, you know, brilliant, like poet or writer, like couldn't have come up with these, couldn't have invented these guys. Um, like what they're, they were, so they were supposed to be like, um, like sheep herders from New Zealand, I believe they were Kiwis. Um, which I don't think I even realized as a kid. I was like, Didn't I guess I assumed they were like maybe Australian. Yeah, I think we thought they were Australian. But it turns out that they um, were uh, legit uh, New Zealanders. Um, and there's a whole backstory about them. They, um, I didn't realize these guys had been wrestling since like the 60s. <laughs> it's been a long journey since hiding the shores of North America. We came here in 1972. And today we stand on the biggest stage in sports entertainment the 2015 WWE Hall of Fame right oh, yeah. these guys were old Shocking. when they were in the WWF um, yeah in fact yeah they started wrestling as the Kiwis in 1966 Luke Williams and Butch Miller um, for NWA New Zealand um, in 1966, these guys traveled all around the world. They, you know, just went from territory to territory. They wrestled in Japan. They wrestled in Puerto Rico. They wrestled like all over the fucking place. All like basically every promotion in in America, you know, had them come in at one point. And I also didn't realize earlier on in their career, they were like 
more like hardcore like they would have a lot of matches with like blood and like weapons and um like they were like really that sounds yeah really into just like extreme um you know colors as they would say um in the business and um and then when they came to the wwf vince looked at them and he was like oh i should you guys are gonna just be like a a fucking incredible like cartoon for me you're like the kids are gonna eat you up like look at you two like you're you're absolute maniacs you're characters and they kind of really were in real life um from what i can gather i um man i could never really put my finger on the deal with these guys i i had this like vague fear that like i feel even like weird admitting that like were these guys maybe like cannibals or something i i got the sense that <laughs> Very these possible. dudes could yeah. like potentially eat human flesh or brains or something yeah. um there was they licked yeah, each other's heads that, like, remember what's that uh oh go ahead ben oh no i was just reminding you remember their their gimmick was that they would lick each other's heads right maybe that was it maybe that was like this... like they were not all there like that was very much like part of their like you were kind of like these guys are legit crazy yeah like, not legit crazy humans. legit like maybe violence maybe like there's something very uncomfortably off kilter about these guys um Ghost, talk to me about Butch's attire. What is happening here? So th- there's the uh, the gray and white camouflage, which we know about. And then also that white undergarment tank top. Um, it was, I just, I don't know, man. There is something. It just, it, yeah, it, feed, it feeds into, you know, what Vince was going for when he dressed these guys up. It's just the unstable... Appalachian hillbilly. Yeah, obviously they're Kiwis, but, you know, most Americans can wrap their mind around this being a, you know, unstable, inbred hillbilly with nothing to lose. And uh, that's a man you don't want to mess with, a man with nothing to lose. And uh, yeah. I think they very successfully did that with the uh, all the trappings, the, the gray camo and the <laughs> the white uh, tank top, the whole, the whole deal. Yeah. yeah it, it right, like, they didn't operate, like, like normal wrestlers so it's like you could you could beat these guys up and they like wouldn't they would like like it maybe like right. they would like that, that, they were... that's the scariest thing and uh, yeah. stepped into that is like someone that's not operating on the same set like of scale rules that you are it's so <laughs> yes. it's like a monster it's like <laughs> they maybe enjoy that, that, pain or something yeah that unpredictability is one of the most terrifying things uh, you can have in a human. It's just you, all bets are off, and I think that's uh, Butch and Luke in a in a sentence. So yeah. two minutes later, Jake the Snake Roberts comes number nine. flying in, number nine. And here comes Jake, Jake the Snake Roberts. Oh, that's really getting And he is looking boy. limber and fired up, and Ben... Do you know what was happening here with Jake the Snake Roberts and Rick the Rod- Rick the Model Martell? Because Roberts comes in, man, with a vendetta. Do you? What is the yeah. backstory here? Well, there was a big, big feud that had begun um, earlier in the summer of 1990, um, wherein uh, I believe it was on the Brother Love Show. Um, uh, Jake was on there um, with his snake, Damien. And Rick Martell, Rick the Model Martell, uh, came on as a guest at the same time. Like, you know, how, like, a talk show might have two guests. So, you know, like, Jake slides over in his seat, whatever. Model comes in. And Model being, um, you know, a heel is is acting very arrogant. He has um, this giant atomizer, which is filled with his signature cologne, um, Arrogance, I believe, was the the name of it, right? Amazing. Um, 
And um, and as memory serves, Model began spraying uh, the snake bag um, with the cologne. And Jake told him, cut it out, cut it out. That's, you know, that's not cool. Don't do that. And then at some point, like, Jake attacks Model or Model attacks Jake. And he sprays Jake in the eye with the cologne, um, blinding, um, temporary bl- temporarily blinding Jake. He's up to something. WWF did this incredible thing where over the ensuing months, they actually had Jake's eye gradually turn white, um, completely opaque white. Jake, I'm going to level with you. Do not expect too much. This is it, man. This is where I find out the real answer. No matter what your vision, Jake, it should improve somewhat over time. Don't you dare lie to me. Okay. I'm going to remove the dressing. Here, man. so he was losing all color all pigmentation from his eye from the the cologne blinding incident um, and, um, so that was basically just like a huge feud that was still very much ongoing at the time of the 91 rumble. It culminated, um, at WrestleMania seven during a blindfold match, um, where both men, you know, for, for Jake the snake to kind of like, you know, show Martel what it was like. Um, both men were, were, uh, had, had, uh, you know, black hoods put over their heads, um, and, and wrestled the entire match, uh, you know, blinded. Um, fantastic stuff. But, um, yeah, so at this point, you know, Jake is, I guess he's like regained most of his vision, um, by now. Um, and he's just going right after the model. Um, hot rod says, look at this. And Jake is just so fired up. Um, you know, hot rod is just, he's just absolutely like, you know, uh, pumping, pumping everything up. these wrestlers are electric um and yeah it's just it feels like kind of one of the first big like 
like pop moments of uh, uh of the of the rumble so far where it's like two guys that really had like they you know would go on to wrestle a one on one you know in a, in a at WrestleMania so it was like a big big feud um and of course they were uh you know they were they were airing out some laundry right, right here in the in the middle of the rumble you know yep. even though it was a one on one match they were doing it amidst this sea of other wrestlers which again is one of the the best things about this is you're seeing all these like you know individual one on one matchups but all happening at once in the same ring. Yeah, just just incredible. Two minutes passes, guys, and Hercules comes flying in. Um, and again, like a bat out of hell, just comes flying in here and gets to work. And at this point, I mean, <laughs> there's a wide shot now where you just see all these guys, you know, just going to work. And this event at this point just feels like this wild orgy of violence and frankly it's like hard to keep track of who's doing what like you know you have you have butch hanging onto the rope model at this point is literally like draped outside the turnbuckle bret hart is oh is jamming there's an, yeah <clears throat> there's an incredible moment a little spot where models hanging on literally like by a fingernail on the ropes and jake is biting his fingers <laughs> did you guys catch that <laughs> Oh, he's God. literally biting his fingers um as as you know model clings on for dear life um uh we should also note that as soon as um uh i think a little after you know jake came in um like a bat out of hell and started clabbering model uh model escaped the ring through the bottom ropes um so he was just like i've had enough of this and he just like goes out just leaves but because he went under the bottom rope um you know he's not eliminated and i'm thinking to myself like why don't all, why doesn't every wrestler just do this all the all the time model, yeah, like model I, gets people did not exploit model that gets enough. jake's arms tied up in the rope jake just splayed along the ropes here like christ and uh, <laughs> uh model in all his glory just whips his hair around displays his fabulous abs for you ghost and <laughs> the <laughs> clock is ticking what do you know tito santana dives into the ring and tito come on come on come on down tito in those white trunks the knee pads uh what do you see here guys from tito santana that you like honestly i didn't have many many feelings about this guy um you know this was sort of towards the tail end of his career he was like a, a bigger star in, in like the you know mid 80s and stuff with the, with the federation um but i don't know i mean he was a, he was a big star in his in his day but um i can't say he uh he really was a personal you know, reached me as, yeah. a, as a kid One yeah thing I, not a lot of strong feelings on him okay great yeah. one thing i want to point out for all the chaos going on inside the ring on the perimeter of the ring you have at this point a collection of managers and referees yeah. squabbling I love that the managers come out the, so yeah the referees whole... really have their hands full of uh, their hands filled here with these managers because there is so much chatter you know these poor guys they're trying to officiate the match in the ring and there is just so much extracurricular stuff happening outside the ring um, and before you know it another 2 minutes passes guys and in comes an absolute icon of the WWF, someone we'll have to dedicate an episode to sometime, Ben, and that is The Undertaker. My first note here about The Undertaker is, my God, he looks so young. Mm-hmm. He looks this was only, like a boy. Yeah, this was only his second pay-per-view. 
I mean, he looks just so, so young. Um, I know, a little baby face, curly red hair. Yeah, man, really. Like, he, yeah. he if he was, like, a teenager or something, I, I could believe it. Um, he kind of reminded me of, uh, of Ghost's younger brother, Alex, at the time. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. Wow. Yeah, the red hair. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, Did um, you guys clock the fan uh, walking back and forth promoting whatever was on his T-shirt? Uh, in 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 part three on Daily Motion, this is around the fourteen minute mark, maybe. But there's a fan. <laughs> you'll you'll. It's right after um, Undertaker oh, enters man. the ring, who is just like walking back and forth right along the uh, the railing there. Um, yeah, if you notice it, let me know. But um, hmm. yeah, yeah. The under. Wait, this is at the at the you said 14 minute mark i think i just caught him yeah a better glimpse he as you continue to watch the match in this wide shot he continues is is walking left to right right to left with like displaying his t-shirt um it just was something that made me smile but um have you caught a glimpse mm. of of what that t-shirt oh i see him now i couldn't i couldn't make out what was on the t-shirt it's too lo-fi i want to know he's so proud of that i know i know right yeah he's like putting his arms up yeah i I caught him yeah yeah um Um, yeah we should note so the yeah undertaker comes in um he is uh yeah this is only his second pay-per-view he had debuted at the survivor series um that previous november of 1990 um, so he was very, very like, you know, fresh, um, and kind of an unknown, but just this like, kind of like, you know, absolutely terrifying monster type figure. Um, and he comes right in and the very first thing he does, which like talk about kind of, Epic, you know, man. putting a guy over as they say, um, or, or, you know, setting a character up. Um, he was given this, this like character in this role. Um, and right off the bat, they establish sort of his, his power, um, because he he strolls into the ring very nonchalantly, picks um, Bret Hart up um, by the neck, and just very calmly like walks him over to the ropes and just deposits him outside the ring, um, and you're just like holy shit! Um, like, For all intents the, and purposes, he was the just, Grim Reaper, uh, and and still yeah. is the Grim Reaper of the WWF, and yeah. and his yeah. and that was his power, which was like he is death. He is almighty and he will take, you know, one of the most powerful wrestlers in, in the whole federation and on one move within five seconds, take him by the throat, calmly lift him to the ropes and just dump him outside. Yeah. He just dumps him. Yeah. You're absolutely right. He is the grim reaper and, and not only in like sort of power, but also just like just indiscriminating, you know, just unthinking kind of like just you are you know before me you are next unemotional ghost completely unemotional unemotional uh, if you look as he comes out he has like a white uh like like a a a white pancake uh face uh makeup on to sort of really make him look extra pale and then let's talk about his look guys he is in the the black getup of of a of a undertaker and the sleeves are jagged they're cut off they're torn he's got those gray monotone boots and there's just something indiscriminating well, they're like they're like stirrups or something yeah right? what do you call those they're not exactly boots they're like they're they're again almost like shin guards that's st- that start below his knee um that you wear on top like, of boots or something right y- yeah, yeah they're like a like a almost like silky looking fabric um 
and then they come down and, and kind of um, you know hook underneath his 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 black shoes. Ben, we um, talked about in our NBA episode where we were comparing teams to to WF stars, WWF stars. We were comparing the Undertaker to the San Antonio Spurs, and when I think of the San Antonio Spurs, mm. I think specifically of Tim Duncan. And the way mm. I would always describe Tim Duncan to people who don't watch the NBA is like he was this incredibly boring great player. Like he's probably the mm-hmm. most boring great star that there has ever been in in basketball and i feel like the undertaker really possesses that quality just sort of undiscriminating uh you know uh just greatness and just just unemotional um just going about his business yeah yeah no he was just like always there yeah he was incredible and yeah he he really did have this air of just like oh god like i don't know who could beat him he seems like a like a different thing like a demigod and what's so what what the look adds to it with the undertaker is um i kind of touched on this point before with the guys that have the pumped up beach muscles uh like rick martell and stuff you can literally hold in your mind the thought of them caring about what they look like Mm. with the undertaker he is just possessed with this otherworldly stature and strength and he's not concerned with mere mortal things such as vanity and you can't you just can't picture him doing that you you, he built this strength just uh, you know living in the underworld uh (laughs) yeah he has you don't a, picture him like preening and primping like you do. Yeah, he was just born like this. This yeah. is just his being. Ben, yeah, you, this is who he I is. Think you mentioned the word monster, and it he has a monster quality, but he also has uh, like a monster quality. Like there is like a Herman Munstery. <laughs> uh, there is like a Herman Munstery um, quality to him, uh, mm. or like a zombie quality to him, where it's like I'm not sure that he can die right like mm-hmm. there is sort mm-hmm. of this like uh supernatural like you could cut off his head and then just another head would grow um out yeah like, he's just like he's not really alive you know yeah totally no he was jason i mean that was why like the, the you know the image of him being you know flat on his back and then suddenly rising you know like that that move that he would do over and over again um, it was just such a brilliant, like the yeah, exactly, just like um, you know, like a hollow, like a Halloween movie where suddenly, like you think he's dead, and then he's just like, nope, he's awake, he's he's still alive. Um, yeah, they uh, they just, I mean, one of the most iconic and just perfectly crafted characters in in wrestling history. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, just like it's incredible, like this era. I mean, we've talked about this uh, before, but like to think of like undertaker an absolute legend you know being here in his very early days and the fact that he existed at the same time you know as hulk and and macho man and ultimate warrior ted db like all these kind of like older generation but like massive superstars you know jake the snake and you know hacksaw jim duggan like all these like massive guys and then like you you at the exact same time had these like you know incredible like you know bret hart and undertaker and these like young up-and-coming guys um, you know, kind of mixing and mingling at the same time, like really it speaks to his really greatness. amazing. Yeah, and yeah. in the Tim Duncan, and just the greatness of the era, just the amount of talent, you know, in the ring at one time. In the Tim Duncan parallel, it's like Tim Duncan won an NBA championship, and I believe he won the MVP of the finals as a rookie. It's like, yeah. wow, like it just like, like it's like staggering. And then like to to consider that he did that 
consistently over the course of a 15, 20 year career. It's the, it it, it right. feels the same with The Undertaker here, where it's like, yeah, he just arrived on the scene and was like a prodigy. He was just brilliant. And he mm-hmm. was competing against, you know, veterans of, of the sport and just held his own. And um, what a loaded event. You've been listening to Switch. 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 Swit